It's a momentous week in Georgia, Washington, and these United States. In this special episode of the Health Biz Podcast, Bloomberg Intelligence Analyst Brian Rye and I discuss the health policy implications of the 50-plus-1 Democratic Senate majority. Listen as we discuss drug pricing, Medicare Advantage, and the public option. I'm your host, David Williams. Thanks for tuning in, and remember to subscribe to Health Biz. Brian, thanks for joining me today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, Brian, it's a big day today uh, in many ways. I guess we'll find out uh, just how big in the coming uh, hours. But uh, just to start off, I want to hear about what's your background and what's your role? Sure. Thanks again for having me. I'm the uh, healthcare policy analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence. We're the research service uh, for the Bloomberg Terminal and Bloomberg subscribers. Uh, I've been with Bloomberg Intelligence for about six years now prior to this I was on the sell side, a number of firms, SunTrust, Raymond James, Jane and Montgomery Scott, covering uh, various healthcare companies, primarily biotech and pharma. Great. Well, there's a lot to talk about in healthcare. Now, you put out a white paper and you had several assertions related to the Georgia election and uh, if it means uh, control of the Senate or effective control by the Democrats. And I'll just go through some of the points. So first thing that you said was that Georgia eliminated pharma's Senate firewall. And what do you mean by pharma having a firewall in the Senate? Sure. Well, you know, over the past couple of years, the House of Representatives, which is controlled by the Democrats, they passed a number of bills uh, vehemently opposed uh, by the pharmaceutical sector, giving the government the ability to, depending on your point of view, either negotiate or dictate prices in the Medicare Part D program, uh, as an example. And those have all died in the Senate. Not that they've been voted down in the Senate. They've never even gotten to that point. Uh, Senate leadership from the Republican side has simply uh, ignored them. And so Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, um, has taken the stance that he does not view that as good policy and so is not going to give that even the time of day, not going to let his committees uh, process those bills, certainly not let them get to the floor for a vote. If the results that we've seen so far in Georgia hold up and it's a so-called 50 plus one majority for, uh, for Democrats, and all of a sudden Chuck Schumer is the Senate Majority Leader, um, then, you know, maybe that calculus changes a little bit in terms of which bills could actually get to the floor and get considered. And I think that's that's the end result. Not that there's a huge difference in the total votes between 51 to 49 or 50 to 50, but that gatekeeper, that firewall, as I termed it, uh, is important, I think. You know, you're, you're pointing to something that's that's clearly important for a, a lot of different areas in the McConnell era, which we've been in for for six years. A lot of things just never come up for consideration. And I'll just I'll just tweak it a little bit more with my words. I would say it's kind of like a fire break. You know, it's like it never even gets across. So the senators never have to do anything. It's like the chasm between the uh, the, the the House and the Senate. It's a Grand Canyon style ditch. Yeah. Now that sounds good. All right. So you also say that drug makers are gutted. And insurers are aided by the by the Democrats' 2021 roadmap bill. You know, I wonder if gutted is is too strong of a word. And what what do you mean by that? And let's break it down because there's a lot of different elements of the pharmaceutical industry. Yeah, and again, to be clear, this is not something that has been enacted, but this was a bill that the Democrats passed actually a couple of different times. The most recent iteration was back at the end of June of 2020. And when I say gutted for for pharma, we do a couple of things. Number one, would start the process. Actually, would give the government the ability to negotiate prices directly with with, uh, with drug makers in the Part Medicare Part D program. That right now is prohibited by law. You know, the, the 2003 Medicare Modernization Act specifically prohibits the government from interfering in price negotiations between pharma and insurers. That's long been sort of the holy grail for Democrats on the drug pricing front was to repeal 
that so-called non-interference clause. And in addition to that, sort of a, not a carrot, but more of a stick, if companies were either unable or unwilling to enter into negotiations um, with the government in that scenario, they would face an excise tax of 65% of gross sales, growing 5% each quarter up to, a, uh, I think, a top of 95%. So again, as things have stood under the past six, over the past six years with McConnell leading the Senate, that was dead on arrival. But now, you know, potentially with Chuck Schumer, you know, allowing those votes to maybe come to the, um, you know, to the Senate floor, raises some questions. And and so that's sort of what I meant by gutted is, you know, that's um, the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office said that would probably reduce Medicare drug spending by about $450 billion over 10 years. That's real money. You know, that's, that's, that's something that I think would catch the attention of a lot of folks. It would call into question the very viability, I think, of the current business model for a lot of PBMs and insurers. And, and you know, honestly, it's for that reason that, you know, you've seen not only pushback from pharma on this front, but also the insurers and the PBMs. They don't want, you know, the government involved in this. And so that's sort of been the hurdle, you know, from a lobbying standpoint, that, that hurdle still exists. But if it's Schumer instead of McConnell, that's one step closer uh, to getting something like that on the floor. It'd be interesting to see how things evolve now with the new administration and also with the reality uh, of the coronavirus pandemic. You know, on the one hand, uh, you can see there's a, a need to push and to, and to save the money. And you say $450 billion sounds like a lot of money. To me, it sounds like uh, half of a stripped-down stimulus uh, bill for one year. So everything changes, you know, uh, over time. But also, I think there's been, you know, some, some of us in the industry, I'll put myself there, are not opposed to you know high drug prices in general if it's for something that's new and innovative. And I don't mind that someone's paying two or three million dollars for gene therapy if it's a real breakthrough and a cure. I think the issue has been with some things that are really a Me Too product or kind of abuse of the orphan drug laws or, or that kind of thing. And I wonder if we'll see with a real innovation that's occurred on the vaccine development and also for things like the monoclonal antibody cocktails for treatment of COVID-19, whether there'll be a more nuanced view and we can tease some of that out. Yeah, I think there probably will be. And again, you know, it's 50 to 50. You know, this is the current election results have gotten the Democrats a little bit closer to the goal. I'm really not convinced they're going to get all the way there. And I think you're right. As a fallback, there are some things where there's some conceptual agreement between the two parties on either some unintended consequences of orphan drug designations or I think there's a willingness on both the part of Republicans and Democrats to give seniors an out-of-pocket cap in the Part D program, restructure that, get rid of the so-called donut hole in there that I know a lot of insulin manufacturers have been hammered by. So there are things they can do well short of, you know, this more draconian uh, step that the, the progressive Democrats um, have favored. So, you know, the other aspect of it, though, from, from the Democrat standpoint is what they'd like to do is, yeah, four to $50 billion, not a big deal in the grand scheme of things, but they can then sort of take that as an excuse to then pay for expanded Medicare benefits, um, uh, Medicare benefits on the other front, where we want to have a new dental benefit, vision benefit, a lot of other things, hearing aids that aren't currently covered under Medicare, and you know use this as an umbrella to help pay for that. So that's how they'll likely try and pitch it. Um, but again, there's a lot, there's a lot of things the Democrats want to do, and only so many days in the year for them to do it. You know, I, I, I'm glad you mentioned hearing aids because uh, we always want more podcast listeners. So I'd be in favor of uh, you know regulating the drug industry if it means that. Let, let's talk about this uh, government negotiating the the drug prices for Medicare. So on the one hand, you know the federal government is a strong negotiator; they've got all the purchasing power and all the resources and so on. You can understand why uh, neither the insurers nor the drug companies want the government involved because then it's sort of less role for them. But 
how effective is the are the feds really as negotiators? I mean, they can't necessarily walk away from the table and say, we just won't cover that drug the way you would see it happen, let's say, in some European countries. And I wonder how effective are they really as would be as negotiators compared to, let's say, the PBMs? You know, I would argue, and it's it's you know something that we may or may not ever see, but you know, a smaller scale um, sort of experiment is looking at the VA, the Department of Veterans Affairs, where they do have closed formularies, do have much lower prices. You know, the downside of that is back to your earlier comment on innovation is because of that there are a number, of, especially the newer biologics that you know, our veterans don't have access to, and so maybe a third, forty percent of, of veterans have to have a separate VA, a separate Part D plan, or some other drug coverage to get access to the drugs that their own VA formulary uh, doesn't cover. And so, you know, that's that's the problem. Um, is that that is a trade-off, and the COVID pandemic has certainly, I don't think, drug industry wanted this to happen, but it is reinforcing. They're a big argument that if you want innovation, and my goodness, everybody wants innovation more than anything right now on the pharmaceutical front and vaccines as well. Um, you want to do that, then maybe price controls aren't the way you want to go. So with that, you know, in in sort of their their mind, the onus is now on the industry to kind of deliver on that and make sure that you know you don't have any bad actors on the COVID front uh, taking advantage of the situation either. You know, when the Affordable Care Act was passed, there was this idea of a public option, which is something that I liked because the idea was, you know, you have health insurers that everybody, nobody really likes to deal with a health insurance company, you know, including including me and probably people who work for health insurance companies don't like dealing with their health insurer. And the idea of a public option is, well, let them, let the, you know, let a public version compete and see how it does. And it may sharpen, you know, may sharpen the pencil uh, of those insurers. And instead we got this co-op program that was kind of doomed to failure, or at least did did fail. Now, there's talk in Biden care of bringing a public option back, although it's in a, in a way that wasn't originally intended, but more of a kind of a workaround for states that didn't expand Medicaid. Can you talk about this, you know, public option? Yeah, it, it is something that um, President-elect Biden has put in his, in his health care platform. I would say it's not included in things that Speaker Pelosi has put forth from a congressional standpoint. So there's, there's some things there. And going back 10 years, I know a lot's changed in the past decade, but when the ACA was passed, this the true public option, as you mentioned, was kind of left on the cutting room floor, that it was considered to be a bit too extreme, um, you know, even when Democrats had massive majorities in both the House and the Senate uh, back then. So remains to be seen what they can actually get across the table. But the idea is, you know, at the time when they passed the ACA, the Medicaid expansion was thought to have been, you know, kind of forced, required for all states. The 2012 Supreme Court decision made it optional, and we still have about 14 states, I think, that have not yet expanded Medicaid. So my guess is the sort of the compromise here is going to be some combination of carrots and sticks to try and get those holdout states uh, to expand, either through, you know, guaranteeing them 100 percent match on the Medicaid, uh, you know, spending for three or four years, um, you know, maybe penalizing those that don't with lower base rates. So I'm, I'm not sure what they'll come up with. Certainly, um, the HHS nominee, uh, Javier Becerra, has been leading the, the legal defense of the ACA in, in the Supreme Court. So he's quite familiar with the various levers that can be pulled. And I would expect from his standpoint on a regulatory basis that, you know, maybe rolling back some of the ACA actions undertaken by the Trump administration, looking to expand and protect ways they can work with a narrowly divided both Senate and you know, given that Pelosi lost a number of, uh, of her members on the Democrat side as well in the House, they've got a smaller majority there. So it, it's probably going to be more of a centrist view in terms of what can get across. But yeah, by all means, 
you know, the Democrats have have the chance they've been looking for to both roll back some of the Trump actions and, and maybe even expand uh, the ACA's reach um, going forward. There was a lot of discussion in the uh, Democratic primaries about so-called Medicare for all, which had, you know, different definitions uh, over time. And Biden never really uh, embraced that. But he has talked about things like uh, lowering the age of eligibility for Medicare. And we've also seen, while there hasn't been any sort of, you know, Medicare for all or socialism, there has been a big use of uh, Medicare Advantage over the past few years. And how do you see those two things interacting? Is it likely that we're going to see a Medicare expansion and possibly to people that are a bit younger than the current, you know, 65? Yeah, I, I think that is, again, a more moderate version of the Medicare for all, Medicare for more uh, kind of approach. And I think Vice President-elect Harris even mentioned that specifically in the one VP debate uh, that was held that maybe lowering that age down to 60, well, officially, the true Medicare eligibility age remains 65, but allowing those maybe down to 60 to buy into the program if they desire, because, you know, you get that 62, 63-year-old individual, maybe they're not employed, they're on the ACA individual marketplace, you know, that's a, a pocket where it's not really a good deal financially, hasn't been a good deal financially for them. And so if you give them the option, perhaps, of, of taking Medicare, they might accept that. I expect that as part of any program like that, it won't just be fee for service, that they will allow Medicare Advantage to be an option. So from the standpoint of, you know, United Health, Humana, any of the managed care companies, you're, you're, you know, sort of robbing Peter to pay Paul, moving one member maybe from your ACA individual marketplace plan to your Medicare Advantage plan, your overall membership numbers, you know, so don't change uh, with that. Had we been looking at a, a true blue wave with an expanded House majority, you know, Democrats maybe with 54, 55 members in the Senate, um, then you might be talking more about a true fee-for-service type expansion. But I think anything that happens now is going to include the Medicare Advantage as well. Brian, your white paper is all about you know, policy implications for different sectors of the industry, but you do call out one company in particular, HCA, and say that they're at a lot of risk in the Biden era. Why'd you pick on them and what, what's your current thinking? Well, you know, not so much picking on them as using them as the best example. I think the largest you know, hospital provider out there that, you know, any sort of move towards uh, Medicare you know, rates is going to be negative for providers. I think, you know, by and large, as we just discussed, managed care probably will, will be fine either way. And in fact, you might see Democrats look to put more money into the ACA reinsurance pools and, and expand subsidies, things they would, would back. You know, providers, however, anything that moves the needle away from commercial rates towards more Medicare, Medicaid rates could be problematic. And in addition to this, you now have states facing the double whammy of, you know, greater unemployment rates because of the COVID pandemic. Um, and lower tax revenues coming in. So they've got higher numbers of people enrolling in Medicaid, lower revenues coming in to pay for it. You know, what are they going to do? And one of the first things they can do is try and get, I guess in their words, creative, which means lower rates uh, for providers, you know, maybe a Netflix type model for prescription drugs, a subscription-based program, but things that probably won't add money uh, to their mark, uh, to their, um, to their bottom lines. And so again, that's, you know, the market caps um, or the, the, the providers are the ones that are going to see, I think, maybe a bit more uh, problems. The other thing that Congress sort of inserted into the year-end budget package was the uh, surprise billing fix, you know, that now gets kicked to the, the Biden administration to actually write the rules on that, see how that looks. But, you know, there, there's just a lot of uncertainty facing the provider community right now. 
Brian, there's a lot of change going on in the world as, as we sit here on the uh, afternoon of January 6th. The uh, Senate races, the, the second one anyway in Georgia, hasn't been called and the peaceful transition of uh, power is under some level of threat. We'll, uh, we'll see just how much, uh, I hope, by the time this airs uh, tomorrow morning. Um, what are you going to be watching for over the next uh, few weeks as things unfold since not everything is set right now? Well, you know, a, a few things, and, and you're right. We certainly hope that everything works out uh, fine. Um, I would say that we're still waiting for a couple of key appointments from the Biden administration. Um, and again, with presumably the two seats going to the Democrats, that maybe gives him a marginally greater flexibility to, to maybe appoint someone, if he so desires, someone a bit more progressive in terms of running CMS uh, and the FDA. Um, you feel like that they, even on a party line vote, they could now get anyone they really want. Uh, confirmed, um, you know, by the Senate for those positions rather than facing a, a 52-48 deficit and Mitch McConnell uh, sort of calling the shots on those things. So uh, looking for who's going to name for the rest of his healthcare team there. And then to see, I think there's a lot of talk about the Democrats using this budget reconciliation process, the same thing that Republicans used in 2017 to pass their tax reform bill. You know, what are going to be the priorities for the Democrats? We've been talking about health care. You know, is it going to be health care? Do they want to focus entirely on, you know, another round of stimulus, you know, for for the pandemic? Uh, are there other issues outside of healthcare? So there's only you know, one, maybe two of those so-called silver bullets available, in, you know, each year. Republicans tried successfully in 2017 with tax reform, unsuccessfully when they tried to repeal and replace uh, the ACA. So it's just, you know, Schumer and Pelosi kind of deciding we don't want to have a flop like Republicans did where you try and fail. So what do we feel comfortable and confident about uh, moving forward? So that's that's going to be what, what I'm looking forward to later this month, sort of getting a feel for what the priorities are going to be for uh, Schumer and Pelosi. That sounds good. Brian, I've really enjoyed uh, reading your white paper and having this discussion today. Uh, where do people access your your research? What Who is eligible to be able to see it? Yeah, uh, our research is available to all subscribers of the Bloomberg Terminal. You can find it if you have a Bloomberg uh, subscription on BIGO. Great. Well, Brian, thank you very much for speaking with me today. And uh, let's see where it goes from here. My pleasure. Thanks again for having me. You've been listening to the Health Biz Podcast with me, David Williams, president of Health Business Group. I conduct in-depth interviews with leaders in healthcare business and policy. If you like what you hear, go ahead and subscribe on your favorite service. While you're at it, go ahead and subscribe on your second and third favorite services as well. There's more good stuff to come and you won't want to miss an episode. If your organization is seeking strategy consulting services in healthcare, check out our website, healthbusinessgroup.com.